cannot believe it's still raining. I know it's good. The lakes need the water. I got up this morning and uh, I came in the bathroom. My wife's in there and I said, and I said, it's still raining. She says, my hair knows this. And as a dude, I don't get it, but whatever, and whatever. Um, so I have a really cool announcement. Uh, where, where'd they, where'd you guys go? Oh, uh, James and Haley are having a baby. <laughs> James says, well, actually, Haley's having the baby. James got the fun part. Um, but you know, it's, did he just say that? It's his element. Get used to it. All right. James goes, can I announce it? And I go, no, I won't announce it. I remember the, anybody say Lion King? I think we ought to extend like a little thing out like this and play the music and have James go. <laughs> like when the baby's born, don't drop it! You know, don't do what I do and make sure the head's supported. And I was like, okay. All right, uh, just uh, one thing before we start is that um, uh, Element U starts Wednesday night. Element U. So if you guys are interested in learning about apologetics, I recommend you all come. Apologetics is how to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, in words that hopefully aren't offensive, but words that are actually just true. Uh, we're going to cover, just do a short six weeks on this. Uh, the first week we're going to cover what apologetics is and why it is important and how you can have a good apologetic without being a big jerk about it. Uh, because we all need that. And the second week, we're going to talk about uh, the existence of God, how you can actually prove the existence of God. The third week, we're going to talk about Jesus and the resurrection and how the historical evidence is for that. The fourth week, we're going to talk about the scriptures, uh, how we got them, why we can trust them. The fifth week, we're going to talk about uh, alternating theologies that are out there, like things like neo-orthodoxy. You're like, what? Okay, good, you'll learn something. And then the last week, we're going to talk about, you know, problems with the Christian position. Like, what, what, yes, there are problems in the Christian position. Like, if God is all good and God is all powerful, why is there pain and suffering in the world? So we're going to deal with that in the sixth week. So we invite you guys to come. It's at 6.30 starting this Wednesday. The only, the only person who needs to sign up is if you need child care. Because we need to know how many people are coming and how many kids you bring in so that we can staff that adequately. And if you don't need child care, you don't sign up, just show up. 6.30 Wednesday night be an awful lot of fun. All right, so welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here. If you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. Although if you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Version. Click on Live in that. It'll bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes and verses and the questions and all that goes along with today's message. So why don't you stand with me, read into God's Word, and I will try and slow down. But it's not going to happen. Uh, it says Psalm 42, verse 2. This is a, a verse about longing. It says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we as a people would be those who understand hungering and thirsting and longing and what that looks like in our lives. That, that ultimately we'd understand that our satisfaction comes from you as our God and our King who has saved us. But then you also put a longing in our hearts to see things set Right, And I ask that through this morning you would continue to focus that vision where it needs to be. Amen. Have a seat. Right, so this is week six of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Uh, all the way back in Genesis, I got in the habit of telling you what week we were on, uh, because then you can kind of figure out, you know, exactly where we're at in that and keep track. So if you got engaged or, or had a baby or got married, you can say, oh, we were in Genesis when this happened. You know, or, you know, in like a couple years we're going to do the book of Acts, the book of Philippians. Oh, I was in Acts when this happened, or Philippians. Uh, apparently a lot of people got pregnant during the summer of love when the Song of Solomon. I got frisky during the Song of Solomon, you know, and, 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 um, we made a baby, how that works. So, uh, you know, d- during the Reformation, people in John Calvin's church, they would actually do this. They would date themselves by what series he was going through, which is kind of funny because I'm not John Calvin because, one, I never burned anybody for heresy. Uh, and secondly, I'm, I'm not as smart, but I like the whole dating thing, so that's what we're doing. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus stands up into a massive crowd of people. These are Gentiles and Jews and rich and poor, people from a place called the Decapolis, which is a very Greek region that is settled by Alexander the Great, people from Galilee, which was a very Jewish region, and all these different people, this is what happens. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And then the fourth blessing, what we're talking about this morning, is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So it starts, you know, blessed are the losers, those without a wisp of religion. You don't even really know anything about God. God's still offering the kingdom to them. Blessed are those who grieve and mourn over their sin because of what knuckleheads we are and how good God is to us. He says, blessed are the average, those who see their sin humbly, maybe even the unnoticed people, you know, the meek, the the humble. And he gets to number four. And I'm going to give you a warning about number four. We're going to cover number four in two weeks. This week, we're going to study it from like a heart issue. Next week, we're going to look at it theologically. So it's like, oh, I really like the theology of last week. You'll get more of that next week. But today, I really just want to break it down to more of a heart issue and what we're looking at. That may bother some of you, but hopefully you'll get it by the end of this. And that is the idea of hunger, thirsting, craving for righteousness and satisfaction. You know, what does Jesus mean when he talks about righteousness? There's a long Jewish tradition that follows Jesus here that God's desire for the world is this thing called shalom. Shalom. It means God's peace. You look in the book of Genesis and God orders everything and he gives man responsibility and stewardship over his creation. God essentially makes everything, places man into his creation and he says, now you get to make things. You get to do things. And the first thing he makes Adam is a gardener. And Adam landscapes. And that's what he does. Today, that's a lot of things. If you like playing music, you get to play music. If you like sculpting, you get to sculpt. If you like poetry, you get to poet. I don't know whatever that is. You know, if you like construction, you get to build things. You like cars, you can tear them apart and put them back together a hundred times. Car, us uncar guys don't understand that at all, but, but there you go. But it's all about building and taking creation somewhere. The words that are used in Genesis are the words radah and kibosh. And I know it sounds like World Wrestling Federation terms. I'm going to put the kibosh, you know, on you. But they're not. It means responsibility and stewardship. And there is harmony in the hierarchy that God set up. It is God, people, creation. Peace and harmony come from that hierarchy. And if creation puts itself above people, it doesn't work. Like if people start to worship creation rather than the creator, everything is out of whack. If people decide to play God and don't submit to him, we begin to destroy that order. And so last week we talked about sin. Well, what is sin? Sin is essentially the disruption of God's peace. 
the disruption of this shalom. We are created to have peace with God. We are created to have peace with each other. We're created, we're created to have peace even with creation itself and peace even within ourselves. And sin is all the ways that we come along and disrupt what God intends for us to have in his shalom, how we have violated that peace. Secondly, sin is rebellion, where we don't like the way God has set things up, so we rebel against that order. We rebel against the way the world was made, and we begin to destroy it in the process. God calls us to do certain things, and we run headlong in the other direction. It is sin, it is rebellion. And so shalom is this idea of everything in its right place, in the right time. Righteousness can only be understood in understanding proper shalom, everything in the right place. Again, Proper relationships between God and people, people and people, people and creation, people in themselves, our insides and our outsides. Righteousness is proper relationships all restored. Hungering and thirsting was everything as it was meant to be, to be that way again. Now, this could be lots of different things. This could be a gigantic universe-wide desire, or it could be a personal longing deep in your soul. Sometimes it could even be like a large global issue, like... Maybe you're into nuclear proliferation. You're like, I don't like how some countries have nukes and others don't, and the ones that don't want them to go hurt people, I want to be able to do something about that. It could be something like that. It could be you seeing one country oppressing its people, and you want to do something about it. It could be you seeing uh, how malaria, where we don't even know what that is in our country today, is still killing children in tons of third world countries, and you want to do something about that. It could be how we work with that group uh, in Indonesia that gets, I mean, in Thailand that gets girls out of prostitution because we think it's an epidemic there. We want to do something about it, so we step into the middle of that and try and help girls out of prostitution. It could be something even as simple as you've seen a bully down the street who is picking on everybody, and you want to do something about that. It could be something that's systematic, and you look around the world and you say, you know what, we have enough food, we make enough food to feed everybody, but some governments are really greedy and don't let the food go where it's supposed to go. You could look at an education system that is broken with bureaucracy. It's, it's top-loaded and heavy, and we keep giving more money to it, and the money never goes where it needs to go, and you're frustrated at it. It could be relational. It could be you're in a marriage, and you're always struggling to do the right thing, and every time you try and fix it or do the right thing, either your words or your actions, they, they come out wrong, no matter what you do, and you're just frustrated all the time. You know, Maybe it's personal. Maybe there's an addiction inside of you, and there's this desire that's eating you from the inside out, and you know it's horrible, yet you keep coming back to it, and every morning you wake up, and you're like, why did I give into it again? Why did I do it? It's these desires, this hunger and thirsting for things to have the shalom of God. One time, a few years ago, I'm in a foreign country. It's another continent. It's on the other side of the world. I'm with a friend of mine who was scouting out to see if God was calling him to be a church planter in this country. So we're driving around in this very scary cab. It's like a 1980s Nissan Sentra, so really safe. Just in case you were wondering, uh, we're in this country. There, there's like there's like three lanes on each side of the road, but there's six cars to every single lane. No one follows any traffic signs. It's a scary place to go and ride in a cab. Nobody owns their own own car because everyone's like, I'm gonna get in a car accident if I own my car. Everybody takes these scary little cabs. Now we stop not because there's a stop sign that's working or the or anybody follows traffic laws, but all the traffic for some reason just stopped. And over on the side of the road, there's this guy walking down the road with his wife, girlfriend, daughter, mom, somebody, and and they're in this argument, and he punches her in the face. And I'm like, what? and so I go to get out of the cab. I'm not a big guy, okay? You see me, like I'm built like a junior high girl. Okay, we got that, right? <laughs> but I figure I can do something. I can, I can stand between them. I can holler for the police. I can do something in this. And I go to get out of the cab, my friend grabs my arm, and he goes, where do you think you are? And I go, what do you mean? He goes, you are a white guy from America. 
Do you not notice where you are? You're not in a place where you re-pull over in a cab and get out and you go do something to fix it. You don't do that here. And the thing is, there's, there's helplessness as we drive by because there's nothing I can do when I got this ache. When we want to live in a world that is ordered by God's peace, there is a hunger and a thirst that comes along with that. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus says in that lack, in that ache, in the desire, in the hunger pains, God is there. Blessed are you when your body begins to crave the shalom of God. Because before it's anything else, it starts as a deep hunger and an ache. And eventually, hopefully, we act on that deep hunger and ache. See, Jesus doesn't start with a command. Oh, you know, if you hunger and thirst, this is what you have to do. He doesn't start with advice. Here's the seven steps to getting rid of your hunger and thirst. He doesn't give blame. Oh, you hunger and thirst because you're lazy. It's not even really teaching like, hey, here's what you Google about hunger and thirsting. It's a message that in the middle of hungering and thirsting, God is there. Why? Because God is bringing that hunger and thirst to his people. I think in some ways for the light to come on about this, you've got to look at the opposite of what Jesus is saying to help you understand what he actually is saying. And I really hope no one walks into this message right now. And if they do, you're going to explain to them what's happening Okay, they're going to be like, that guy's a nut job. You can explain to them what's happening and just go with it. I'm going to show you what some commentators say about this verse, and then we'll rip it apart and say what's actually right. If you don't understand where I'm headed, good for you. You're confused. You're right where I want you. Okay, so one commentator speaks of this verse like this. He says, Hungering and thirsting for righteousness means that we intentionally devote every aspect of our lives, every molecule of our being to embrace, adopt, and ultimately become morally upright without guilt or sin, upright, honest, straightforward, open, virtuous, and honorable. You got that nailed? All of us, yeah, woo, okay, apparently we're all there. There's a whole body of interpretation that reads this verse this way. It's saying that Jesus says that God blesses the people who intentionally focus all of their lives to become morally upright. Can I tell you, morality doesn't bring Jesus. Jesus brings morality, but morality does not bring Jesus. And it seems to me if you're morally upright, you're in a pretty small club. And is that what Jesus is teaching? Those of you who are virtuous and morally upright, well, God's with you. If that's what Jesus is saying, then that's not gospel. This all of a sudden becomes brand new laws. It's not an announcement of grace. It's just one more person saying that God's with all the good people. This commentator goes on to say, not only just to strive for these qualities, but to be like Christ, to become righteousness. In other words, righteousness is a lifestyle in complete conformity to the will of God. Now, we wouldn't really disagree with that, right? And then he says, it's the lifestyle, pay attention here, both Christ finds pleasing and approves of. Now, when you read this, you're like, I am exhausted just hearing those words. All the stuff I have to do. Really? I mean, what does that teaching say? It means that Jesus just stood up in this massive crowd of lost humanity to all people over the known world and says, if you are morally upright and if you are without sin, if you have completely devoted your life to the conformity of God in such a way that you could be the Messiah and you could be the Savior of the world, if you're like that, well, then God blesses you. It says God blesses only the good people. He says that you know, if you can do this on your own steam, well then, you know, God blesses you. A lot of commentators say things like this. One commentator says, this is the most demanding beatitude. Another one says, this is the hardest to achieve, like it's your achievement that gets you these things. So what this means is Jesus went up on the mount, and he said, now I'm going to give you some new, really, really hard, almost impossible rules to follow. Aren't you excited about that? And the crowd said, man, this is such good news. I'm so glad I'm here today. You've got to remember, in this setting, 
Many Jews worked for a piece of land for generations. And because of this massive taxation by the Roman government, they're starting to lose their family land. So you have massive unemployment. And this is why large crowds can gather in the middle of the day who are very hungry. The fabric of Israel's culture and the way things work, it is beginning to crumble to pieces because the foreign forces come in and oppress them. The way their economy worked is no longer how the economy works. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Many in that crowd actually were hungry, and they were thirsty in a very real sense. And then it goes deeper to where they ask, well, what's happening to my own country? What's going on with this? My own land is in upheaval. Does Jesus stand in front of these people experiencing all they're going through in this political and social and economic climate to these families who are torn apart because of their struggles and their culture and say, all the righteous, virtually, morally upright people, well, you're okay. But the rest of you, sorry, stinks to be you. Is that what he says? You know, If so, that's law. It's a list of all the good people who are in. No, see, Jesus makes this announcement that God's blessing is on those who don't have it all together. Because in all honesty, none of us have it all together because we all start poor in spirit. It's like all the people who don't measure up, those who hunger and thirst for the world that should be, that we would love to see the shalom of God restored everywhere in a way where everybody lives it but it's not there yet. Jesus ends this beatitude, for they shall be satisfied, or they will be filled. Bless those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Some people will go, well, Jesus is now talking about the end of the world. That's what he's talking about. When God remakes the world, people will have all their needs met. So that means Jesus stands up to this crowd 2,000 years ago who are hungry, who are thirsty, who are hurting, and he says, you're going to be hungry for several thousand years, but don't worry, in the end, I'll feed you. I'll give you a meal. It'll be wonderful. Is that what he offered people in confusing and desperate times? People are struggling in their own relationships or their distance from the peace of God, their own world in upheaval. Was the best he could do was just hang in there for a few thousand years and in the end you'll get some pie. Is that what he's doing? They shall be satisfied. No, that's not what he's doing. That's not what he's doing. What he's talking about is poor in spirit, leads to mourning, leads to being humble, realizing that God has saved us. And when we realize that, we start to have a hunger and an ache and a burning deep inside of us because in one point, God has saved us. He has satisfied our souls. But on the other side, he's creating a burning desire for you and I to bring about the shalom of God to this world. Let me, let me talk about this a little bit uh, in a real United States of America 2014 type context on how I think God blesses this longing for righteousness even when you don't have it. I think, he, again, he blesses is the craving and the awareness even when you're not there. Uh, last year, my wife and I bought her a car. Uh, even as I write this, uh, the, I think that the car is still new, still smells new on the inside. The dog never gets to ride in the car. He rides in the truck all the time, does not get to ride in the car. Now, every time we buy something expensive, I get a little depressed. And she makes fun of me because of it. Because I'm like, oh, I just bought this. Oh, I feel so bad. For about a couple of months, and I, and I start to feel better, you know. Now, uh, just, just to let you know, so you know where we're at. My wife and I, we give over 10% of our income to our local church. We give it to Element, plus we give to a couple other organizations that are out there. So we're giving, you know, 10% plus of our income away. We believe that everything we have is God's. It is not ours. We believe giving is essential to become the type of people that God intends for us to be. And we don't even think you can really even worship God correctly if we're not learning how to actually give. And some of my friends tell me that they think the gospel has ruined me because they think that, hey, you can go spend more money on yourself and go buy these things for yourself and do all these other things. And I'm like, when my wife and I bought our first house, even had someone tell me, they said, you know, you could afford a house like this. And I said, well, no, no, because this money isn't ours. 
You know, this it goes here first, and this is what we can afford. And it's this whole thing where, where they think God has ruined me because I, I want to give, because I see it all as his first. So sometimes I talk about this to my to my gospel community. Uh, I talk to you guys about it when I, when I read the scriptures, this whole deepening, you know, our walk with God to understand where he's calling us to be. And then I begin to see God's heart for the broken and the needy. My wife and I, we see suffering in the world and Jesus' heart as it beats for that suffering world. But we wanted to get her a new car. Okay, so we're in this tension. And I have all sorts of logical reasons why she needs this car. But even as we bought it, you know, even after we give as much as we do, I still see that car as less clean drinking water you know, for some people in a foreign country. You know, I see it as one less transition room for a teenager in Haiti. I see it one less meal for a starving child in Ethiopia. You know, I start to think, well, I could have bought the cheaper car, you know, one that always has the word sale written across it because nobody wants it because there's no safety features in it, you know, that, that where the seats feel like cement and the windshield wipers are like old gas station squeegees and the suspension feels like the Jolly Green Giant was riding it around for years of skateboard. You know, it's like, oh, I could have bought that one. Or I could buy something a little better and get a little better and better gradients and, you know, and get something like that. And I'm torn between the two. It's this tension. How do I justify a car when I know the needs that are out there? And how do I justify a better car when I know the needs that are out there? Now, my gospel community always mocks these types of things as first world problems. And they laugh at me. But I'm like, but we live in the first world. These, these are some of our problems. How do I even navigate what to do about a car? Because what lacks in the back of that hungering and thirsting for righteousness, the right thing, is that, well, if I make the right decision, then God's going to bless me. If I make that right decision, God's going to be with me. But Jesus' announcement in the Sermon on the Mount is that God is with me even in that tension. It doesn't mean that I say, well, I had, you know, I had the tension, thank you, God, and then go buy whatever I want. That's not what it's saying. It means that the struggle is not discounted in the process. God is not saying, I'm on the other side of the struggle once you get it all figured out. What Jesus is saying is that God is in the middle of that tension and even blesses us in the midst of it, which means that Jesus blesses his people even when we don't have it all together. See, so often we're torn in places where, you know, what's the right thing? If I choose the right thing, well, God's going to say, bless you. Jesus just said, blessing is for those who are aware of the tension and find them in it and says, I don't, when we say, I don't know what to do. The religious impulse is always saying God's blessing is for everybody who can figure out the car versus world hunger problem. That's what religion says. Those who follow the law get rewarded, but Jesus is gospel. It's that those who don't always know the right answer, those who can't resolve the tension, but they have an ache for righteousness, they are blessed. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying, oh, i got a choice to go to the strip club or go to Element on a Sunday morning, okay? That's, you know, this is, this is more attention between two right and good things. I mean, that one should be a no-brainer, by the way, okay? <laughs> you know? But it's not fatalism where it says, oh, I had the struggle, now I can do whatever I want, or now I had the struggle, I don't have to do anything on the backside. I think part of the reason the hungering and thirsting is there so we do something. We do work for it, so to speak. Not because working makes you righteous, but because God has called us to not only hunger and thirst for righteousness, but be instrument instrumental in bringing that righteousness about. Uh, back in the book of Genesis, you know, at the, at the end, we talked about a guy named Joseph. Joseph is one of the most amazing guys in Scripture. One of the most amazing things about his life is that he hungered and thirsted for righteousness. And he kept going towards righteousness, even when everything kept slamming him back down. He ends up in a pit. He gets pulled out of a pit. He gets sold into slavery. He does the right thing in slavery. He gets thrown into jail. does the right thing in jail. gets forgotten about in jail. continues to do the right thing in jail. gets pulled out of jail, saves an entire country, and still lives as a slave to Pharaoh his entire life. His life is always in tension. See, we should seek to be people who are pushing for God's shalom, God's peace, even in the midst of tension. 
you know, fi- you know, faithfully demonstrating God's goodness, even when we don't even know the exact right answer to something. I think that's part of understanding the character God is building in his people. That we don't become idle with indecision. But because we love and serve God, we seek to be a blessing whenever and wherever we are. And we pray for guidance in all things. It's part of being part of Abraham's covenant. You'll be a blessing to the entire world. Well, how do I do that? You know what? I got this and this and this. Right. In that tension, God says, bless you. Bless you. And we walk around thinking, how can I bless people? I mean, I have personally sat with people going through great suffering. I get a front row seat to much of it. At times, I don't know what to say when people talk to me. My wife and I are vastly different in this because she will think about something before she says it. And I just say things. If you've been here any length of time, you know that. I think I started this sermon like that. We're talking about James and Haley. So there you go. And, and I've got this huge problem when I don't know what to say to people in pain. I don't know how to handle huge bursts of emotion. So sometimes I just start talking. And I just, the words just start coming out of my mouth. And I can hear myself talking. And I think in the back of my mind, Aaron, please just shut up. Just stop talking. Just stop talking. And then finally somebody has an emotional breakdown. And I'm like, uh, now, now what, I, what do I do? And then I think a couple days later, man, if I only would have said this. If I would have said that, oh, it would have made it so much better. Anybody ever do that? Two days later, oh, yeah, most of us, right? And you beat myself up in frustration, got this like internal you know, tape recorder that's always rewinding and playing that same line, that stupid thing I said over and over. I'm like, oh, stop it. Oh, what can I do? You know, you know, in that happens my internal frustration, Jesus announces, blessed are you. Blessed are you. I am with you. It's, it's not when you can learn how to shut up and you got it all figured out, that's when I'll bless you. The gospel announcement is that God meets us in the frustration, in the anger, in the, oh, in the tension. And he's not there speaking shame and condemnation and judgment. He's speaking blessing and loving and drawing us farther into who he calls us to be. And in the end, that will help us grow and leave behind our old self so much faster than law ever would. Because that is gospel. Gospel is Jesus Christ that's done the work to save you and I. We start poor in spirit. We mourn because we are poor in spirit. But yet we become humble because we realize God has saved us. And he gives a desire to hunger and thirst for righteousness. It is not God blesses you when you figure out exactly what to say. See, the gospel, this is why it is disruptive and it's wonderful at the same time. This is a gospel that has been entrusted to Jesus' church. It is not get it all together, then amazing things will happen. It is God has already done amazing things. And he knows we don't have it all together. But when our spirits begin to hunger and burn for righteousness, God utters the divine assurance, I am with you. I am with you. Open your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1. We'll kind of end with this. If you have an element Bible, it's page 508. You're welcome. I promise you, it is in the Bible. Habakkuk. I didn't make it, make it up. Now, Habakkuk is a guy, he looks around, he sees the world in pain, uh, and he is angry and frustrated about it. He is hungry and thirsting for righteousness. And Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, this is how he starts in verse 2. It actually calls this Habakkuk's complaint. And it says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And this is the word for injustice. And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed. He says, where is your truth now, God? And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. He goes, even when people try to do the right thing, there is injustice and wicked people so that justice is perverted. See, in the the truth of the gospel of grace, the gospel does not rule out you having a Habakkuk type of day of looking at the world and kind of despairing a little bit. I mean, if you ever find yourself in despair because the world is not what you think it was supposed to be, 
You're beginning to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Westernized Christianity, I like to call it the as-seen-on-TV Christianity, has this idea that everything in your life is victorious. The tomb is empty, which it is. We believe that. But they say, because the tomb is empty, you've got to walk around with blinders on, just act like everything is always wonderful. It's not. There's so many human emotions that rise up in us when we hunger and thirst for righteousness. We see the world that we call home, and we see all these things where nations conspire and justice is perverted and people step on one another and friends betray each other. This wells up in us, and we want to do this thing like Habakkuk. Why do you either look at wrong, destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise? Why don't you do anything about it, God? And the truth is, God has done something about it. One, He sent His Son to pay for all of our sins. And secondly, he begins to make us hunger and thirst for righteousness, and he uses you and I, working with him to bring about his peace, to bring about the difference. It's why we hunger and thirst for righteousness. The gospel is all about Jesus. But in a sense, he works with us, so there's the humanity in that as well. I mean, you can have a bad day. You can have a season day. You can have a little bit of depression. It's okay to really rant and hunger and thirst for righteousness when the world becomes overwhelming. But you realize on the backside, Jesus has still won the ultimate victory. So we go back to the idea of becoming humble and meek and believing that and trusting all that he said. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount, of all the images Jesus could pick, he takes a condition that all the people who were there were struggling with and intimately acquainted with. Their hunger and thirst and their Jewish home being torn to pieces where they're hungering and thirsting for God to set everything right. And God says, in the absence, not in the achievement, I'm going to bless that longing, I'm going to bless the desire. He speaks into the despair and into the ache and says, I am with you even in that. Even in that, when your heart aches for shalom. I think a lot of the music or the art that we see today that we really connect with comes from that hunger and thirst. You know, hungering and thirsting, you know, sometimes are signs that we actually are beginning to get it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is not an announcement for people who already have it. It's an announcement for the longing that God places deep in our souls. Now, what happens in in Habakkuk, in Habakkuk 3.19, he gets to a place where he surrenders to God. And in chapter 3, verse 19, he says, The sovereign Lord is my strength. He goes through all of these issues and finally comes down to, I'm going to be humble and I'm going to trust you, God, in all things. It is a sovereign Lord who rules over all creation without fail. We can make some of these choices. God is in control. Genesis 50, verse 20, says what people meant for evil, God takes and he bends and uses for good. Romans 8, 28, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. In the middle of our hunger and thirst, we may not understand, but God is in ultimate control. And though things don't go like we anticipate, it doesn't mean God fell off his throne. It means that we simply trust him more and more and more. Hungering and thirsting can actually give us great strength as we become people who trust what is unseen. I mean, faith sees the strong hand of God, not just in the circumstances of life, but in everything that has happened and everything that will happen. This is why Habakkuk worships the God of the scriptures and why we can too, even in the midst of our hungering and thirsting. The Beatitudes, uh, Habakkuk, really make no sense at all until you start in a place where you're frustrated like him. And you come to a place of trust in God where we worship him in all things, not just songs, but in all of our life because God commissions you and I to go out. You know, to take this hunger and thirst that is placed within us and go out and begin to do something about it. And then we proclaim in the midst of this gospel It is Jesus Christ lifted up 
all people showing who he is. And we've got to ask, you know, are we proclaiming the sovereign self or are we proclaiming like Habakkuk does, the sovereign Lord? Because the hungering and thirsting is meant to leave us there in the place we're proclaiming the sovereign Lord because our souls have been satisfied. And now we go out and hunger and thirst to see God's peace come here. What are you hungering for even today? I mean, those are the questions. You know, because God, I believe, has placed a desire in all of us. And all of us are going to notice different things that we hunger and thirst for. Different really good things. But you've got to start in the place where you realize that even in that hunger and thirsting, he has satisfied the deepest longing of our souls. Anytime someone came to Jesus for healing, the first thing he usually does is he forgives their sins. They come to repentance, and he goes, I'm going to take care of that need first, because that is the true need of our souls to be satisfied, is the forgiveness that only he can give. This is why we go to communion every week. That's why you break that cracker, because it reminds us of his body that was broken for you and I. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice, it reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I, as a lost people. So our souls are first satisfied. The hungry and thirsting that we all craved is simply done in the person of Christ. And then God gives us new hungerings, new thirsting for righteousness to see his peace come and infect the entire world. And he uses his people to do that. And so we step out and step into what he is calling us to do. Um, I remind you guys to take communion. Uh, the band is going to come up right now. Uh, and as they do, I say you guys take communion, and there'll be some uh, deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer for anything, I mean, maybe you're in a place where you are hungering and thirsting, and you can't just put your finger on it, and you like to just pray about it because you're stuck in the tension. Great, that's a great place to be. You know, tension is not a bad thing. I mean, it's it's what's what Jesus says. You know, blessed are you who hunger and thirst, not when you have it all together and figured out. And if you're in a place like that, they'd love to pray with you. There's offering boxes in the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of that worship. And there's some food in the back. Uh, I think there's still some bagels. We invite you guys to grab some, meet some other people. And maybe you start to have a conversation. Maybe invite them out to lunch, go to a gospel community this week, or invite somebody out to dinner this week, and start having this conversation. What are you hungering and thirsting for? What has God laid upon your heart? You know, what do you do when you look around the world and you see, you know, injustice or maybe just injustice in your workplace or in your neighborhood or just, just you know, where is God beginning to build this craving and this hunger and this thirsting? Because first and foremost, you know, Jesus paid for our sin. So our souls are ultimately satisfied. But then he grows us more and more and more to hunger and thirst to see the shalom of God laid upon this entire world. And we are to be a people that bring that about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being a God who has saved us. And though in the midst of everything you have won the ultimate victory, you still partner with your people to bring your shalom and your peace to the world here and now. And so I ask that you would help us to understand the righteousness that you bring that has been gifted to us. And that we in turn would see your longing heart for the world around us. And that we would begin to make a difference because of all that you've done in us. That it'd be be a response to the great grace of a loving God who so loved his people that he didn't leave us lost but brought us home. So have us live and proclaim the sovereign Lord and not the sovereign self. That we would go into all the places you call us to go. That we would live and lift you up in all aspects of our lives. Because you are good. 
you are good. And we worship you and bow to you because of your goodness and your grace. Amen.